Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And before I go any farther, I would like to send my sincere thanks to Daniel P., James C., Justin K., and you aren't going to believe it, but we also received a contribution from another Daniel P., not to mention the fact that there was also a donation from another James, but it was James M., I think I would have really freaked out if there were also two Jameses with the same last initial. Anyway, uh, all of these kind souls made donations to the salon over the past week, and their contributions will go directly to pay off some of the expenses associated with producing these podcasts. So James and James, Justin and both Daniels, I want to thank you all on behalf of myself and on behalf of all of our fellow saloners. These podcasts uh, wouldn't still be going on without you. I also want to thank our fellow saloners who downloaded a copy of my new novel, The Genesis Generation. And uh, after we hear today's talk, I'll give you a little update about that. But first, let's get on with the show, as they say. Today's program actually comes to you through the good graces of fellow saloner Miguel Fernandez, who joins us each week from his home in Portugal. And if you've visited our psychedelicsalon.org blog lately... You will have seen uh, the posting where Miguel gave us a link to download this entire workshop. And while I know that a few of our die-hired McKenna fans have already done so, my guess is that uh, you may not have had time to do so yourself. So for the next couple of weeks, I'll be podcasting what for me are completely new McKenna recordings. And while I'm sure we will be hearing some things that we've heard before, my experience has been that in each of these workshops due primarily to the mix of people in the audience, he usually uh, comes up with a few ideas that I didn't remember hearing before. And uh, so today this is a joint podcast by myself and Miguel. So thanks again for collecting this material for us, Miguel. Uh, And I know that the rest of our fellow saloners send their thanks as well. Now, while I have sometimes edited out the introduction to Terrence's workshops... I thought that this time it might be interesting to leave it in here, just to uh, give you a little idea of how he organized his weekend workshops. And in the interest of the privacy of the students who attended this uh, workshop, I've edited out all of their personal stories. However, uh, there were a few interchanges that they had with Terrence that I left in, and uh, one is for my DJ friends who want a sample of Terrence saying, Most software, I think, is written by freaks. (laughs) I love that. I thought that uh, it was really priceless, and so while the first ten minutes or so of this talk might seem a little disjointed because of my edits, I think that it's better than just cutting out some of the Bard's more interesting remarks. But I did leave in uh, most of the questions that were asked, uh, as no personally identifying information was being revealed then. So let's travel back in time to November 5th, 1988, over 20 years ago, and uh, we'll join a little group of CIIS students in San Francisco and get a feel for the relaxed atmosphere in which his uh, workshops took place. And as we listen, it may be well to keep in mind the fact that this talk was given in the year before Tim Berners-Lee actually invented the World Wide Web. And so when Terrence talks about cybernetics, 
It's uh, with a pre-internet state of mind, uh, something akin to not knowing yet that the world isn't flat. He was a, a true prophet, or at least he was very good at predicting the future trends. And now, uh, here is Terrence McKenna. Well, because this is a small group and probably self-selected for high interest uh, in these subjects, why, as much as possible, you should direct me toward whatever your special concerns are so that for each person, whatever their slant, there's a, a reasonable payback in information. And... Uh, there may be areas where I'm disappointing or unhelpful, but usually then uh, I can point you toward somebody else or some source. The first thing this afternoon, I'll bring in some books to show you 10 or 15 source books that would help you in researching any aspect of this uh, whether you were interested in uh, in it academically or for personal spiritual growth or whatever, it's very important to uh, to be informed. I mean, this is an area where it's very hard to bluff it because uh, you know, on one level, it's a branch of medical science. I mean, what we're talking about is folk uh, pharmacology. And you really should understand certain things about pharmacology, certain things about physiology, uh, because your life may come to depend on it in some situation. I mean, it's not casual, you know. You want to be able to assess risk and to make intelligent choices. So um, what I usually do in these kinds of situations is go around the circle and try to get a feeling for the backgrounds, the interests, and the concerns of whoever is here, and then tailor what is said afterwards uh, to the needs of the group. So why don't we just do that, and you can tell me, you can tell us your name, and then... Uh, your particular concern or what you hope to get out of this, just something which will give me a basis then for uh, uh, structuring what comes afterwards. So why don't we uh, go around uh, in good punpo, shamanic fashion, counterclockwise. Well, that's very interesting. I mean, we'll talk a fair bit about computers uh, most software, I think, is written by freaks. I mean, yeah. if you hang around these scenes where it's going on, everybody has hair down to their waist. And to, yeah. uh, but the relationship of psychedelics to computers and of psychedelic people to computer people and all that is very interesting. Recently, I had to review uh, Marshall McLuhan's letters so I read all these letters that McLuhan wrote. And one of the things he wrote about was uh, how nervous people got when he tried to discuss the effects of media, the uh, unconscious effects of media. And uh, 
he said that people who were raised in the tradition of phonetic alphabet were tremendously nervous about having the machinery of reality examined. And I think the drug thing is even more intensely this kind of issue. When I was in the 60s, when I went home thinking I would convert my family to taking LSD, it was very clear with me, to me as I argued with them about it, that the reason they didn't want to take it was because they knew damn good and well that they were crazy. <laughs> and they didn't want to mess with it. You know, the last thing on earth they wanted to do was probe and explore the mind. They had that all nailed down just fine, thank you. So it is, uh, we will talk about this. Good, well, I'm glad you're here. Okay. Now, did we miss anybody? Well, I'll say just a little bit about uh, my own interest in all this or how I got into it. I don't know. I mean, one creates a, a false history when you look back into time to try and explain how you got to where you are, or at least I do. Uh, trying now to understand how I came to be involved in the psychedelic experience it seems to me that what it really requires is a, a love of the peculiar, of the weird, the bizarre, the outre, the freaky and unimaginable. And I'm not, uh, I don't give great credence to uh, astrology, but I am uh, a double Scorpio uh, so, that, so uh, I'm told that this kind of thing predisposes one for 12th house activity. Uh, several times in my life I've gone through these kinds of revelations where everything seemed to change so profoundly that I could hardly recognize who I had been before. And this, and I noticed this around the time I was seven or eight happening the first time. Uh, nature and the imagination seem to be the precursors to involvement in the psychedelic experience. So I was uh, a rock hound, a butterfly collector, a rocket builder, uh, a connoisseur of explosives and uh, all of this sort of thing while other uh, while my peers were off playing little league baseball I was back in the hills digging out uh, trilobites and uh, tracking down uh, moths and stuff like that and then science fiction was a tremendous stimulus to my imagination because it seemed to say, you know, anything you can imagine is fair game. Anything that you can conceive of can be treated uh, as a reality. And, uh, but I was also very, you know, I was raised in a Catholic household, so my whole thing was to build cynical resistance to, uh, to the spirit. So I was an atheist, a Marxist, an existentialist, a rational material, you know, a pain in the neck 
<laughs> basically. Um, and in all of that, somehow I began reading Aldous Huxley, these the social novels, Antic Hay, Chrome Yellow, these comedies of manners of British academic society. Uh, I was like 12 or something, but I, I always drove myself to uh, read really beyond my level. Well, this led me to The Doors of Perception, which I had read Brave New World. Brave New World was is an anti-drug dystopia, you know, a nightmarish world of plastic, never-grow-old people who take tranquilizers every time there's a hint of any deep emotion or any kind of anxiety. They just, you know, the motto was a gram is better than a dam. And you can just, for a quarter, anywhere, get one of these pills that just puts you right back uh, into being happy and cooperative. And so Huxley, who was, you know, a very concerned person, uh, very interested in the fate of 20th century society, went from this dystopic vision of drugs to the doors of perception and heaven and hell, in which he describes experiments with mescaline that essentially totally turned him around and convinced him that these medieval mystics that he was so fond of, Meister Eckhart and San Juan de la Cruz and so forth, were actually describing the same reality that he was, uh, and William Blake, that he was getting into. So, um, I... Uh, wanted to pursue this, and this, this was like 1962 or something, and I was about 14 years old. And then a few months later, there were stories in the newspaper that morning glories were being abused for their psychedelic effect. Well, I, there was a bindweed that grew locally where I lived, so I went tearing out and gathered half a peanut butter jar of this wild morning glory and, um, and took it home and ground it up and took it. And, of course, nothing happened. But the hour before it came, before it failed to come on, I sat quietly and fearfully and examined my mind from that point of view for the first time in my life. In other words, examine my mind from the point of view of watching it to see if it was changing in some unpredictable way. And I and actually, there, I, though the morning glories were totally inactive, in that hour of watching, I did observe some interesting false positives that would come and go for a few minutes. And... Uh, and then a few months later, I got my data a little more together and learned that it was a certain species of morning glory and that you had to buy the seeds from a seed company. And, uh, and, and then uh, uh, I discovered what it was, not the full-blown psychedelic experience, but by this time I was in Southern California going to school and a friend of mine and I would go out into the Mojave Desert and grind up 
low doses of these morning glory seeds because we didn't know what a dose was really or what actually was supposed to happen because if you read Huxley it's pretty high flown language it's all about radiance and significance and existential validity flooding into the rose well once you're looking at a rose and posing the question is existential validity flooding into it you know you don't have anything to measure it about but we would go out into the Mojave and take these morning glory seeds and observe shifts in the apparent significance of things everything would appear somehow more more pregnant with potential meaning and then in fact if you would close your eyes in that situation there would be the beginnings of hypnagogia and uh, you know drifting lights and undulating colored patterns and uh, grids and lace works and uh, all these things which are the precondition for the psychedelic experience well it wasn't long after that that I went to Berkeley in the fall of 1965 and uh, LSD was available a few months later DMT was available and I was just stunned and have never lost uh, that sense of profound astonishment that such things could exist just that they could exist. I mean, DMT seems to argue convincingly, I might add, that the world is made entirely of, of something that, for want of a better word, we would have to call magic, that, you know, things are not what they appear, not at all what they appear, and that what we call reality is just some kind of utterly provisional construct that, if leaned upon too hard, can just fly to pieces before your startled eyes. Well, then the question is, uh, you know, what are the implications of this? What lies behind it? So forth and so on. So I, um, as most people do or would, I think, looked to, to tradition for some kind of guidance about what this was and read Jung and read Mercia Liad and saw, you know, parallels, but not a clear congruency, and saw in uh, the iconography of Tibetan Buddhism seemed to me to bear certain kinds of parallels to the hallucinations that I had by that time glimpsed uh, in LSD states, and uh, so studied the Tibetan language, went to Asia, learned that the iconography of Tibetan Buddhism is a rip from uh, the pre-Buddhist shamanism of Tibet, which has been there since the Stone Age. You know, Buddhism only entered Tibet in the seventh century with uh, uh, Padmasambhava, and all the iconography was taken from the autochthonous indigenous shamanism that was there. But uh, I didn't find in these yogins and lamas and geishas uh, what I was looking for, which was direct experience of these realities. I mean, Tibetan Mahayana seemed tremendously sophisticated in its analysis of states of mind, but um, uh, operationally it was not coming anywhere close 
to what these psychedelics were able to deliver. Well, because I was fortunate enough to have wise and well-read friends, I knew that uh, this tradition was alive in the Amazon. And so when I finished in Asia and, and I you know, went from Nepal to India, throughout Malaysia, Thailand, Indonesia, uh, ostensibly making my living as a professional butterfly collector, but also using that as an excuse to go to these extremely rural and tribal situations and observe what was going on. And I concluded that it was far in the past or far removed, that uh, it was uh, something that had uh, retreated to the status of a myth in most cultures. And then... In late 1970, I went to the Amazon and very quickly, through using mushrooms, through using ayahuasca, learned that there it is uh, accessed and the traditions are alive and, uh, and the attitudes were sim- uh, simpatico with my own, that there were not lineages you didn't have to pledge eternal fealty to some character, that they were exploratory in their approach. They were open-minded. Everybody admitted that nobody knew what was going on with it, that yes, they could cure, yes, they could balance their societies and act as paradigms of behavior to other members of their tribe, But what they really liked to do, these shamans, was get together and puzzle over what the hell it is and how can it be, you know? I mean, they were like scientists. They were like explorers. They didn't have a myth that encompassed it. They uh, They were technicians of myth, which they presented back to their societies. And this is something that it's very important to realize about uh, shamanism as it is being packaged and sold uh, in this society. That a shaman is primarily a theatrical entertainer. But they're not putting on the show for themselves. But in this society, people actually become actors on their own stage. The the shamans do not believe, I maintain from spending time with them, shamans do not believe in the powers of magic words, crystals, healing darts, and so forth and so on. They manipulate these things the way a stage magician manipulates rabbits, hats, saws, and boxes with women inside them. They understand what it's for and how it works and these things are manipulated to create an effect on other people but the shaman the shamans understand that it, the real magic is the magic of sign symbol and language and that by manipulating cueing by manipulating expectation you can lead people 
to a fundamental confrontation, not only with themselves, but with the other. And um, as I said last night in, in my talk, it is no easier for an Amazonian Indian to come to terms with these things than it is for a native of Manhattan. Uh, ultimately, this coming to confront the other is coming to confront the mystery of being, not as a phrase, mystery of being. I mean, we all give lip service to that, the mystery of being, it's everywhere, it's in the trees, the stones, the elevators, the life of the city, the life of the country, everything is radiant with the mystery of being. This is some kind of gloss. What I'm talking about is actually the mystery of being as existential fact, that there is something that haunts this world that can take apart and reduce every single one of us to uh, a mixture of terror and ecstasy, fear and trembling. It is not an idea. That's the primary thing to bear in mind. It is an experience. And as we went around this morning, a surprising number of people spoke to it as an experience. Uh, and I think this is what makes the great distinction between the shamanic uh, pragmatic approach and what I called last night the political ideologue approach that we are not working here from theory where we really our theories are the weakest part of what we say what we're working from is the fact of an experience which we need to make sense of now let's most of these other-oriented experiences which are hard to keep track of or make sense of cannot be commanded freely. They're more in the realm of, you know, you're traveling in a foreign country and you contract a terrific fever and you fall into a vision and you have deep awareness and realization about the nature of life. This is not an experience that can ever be repeated or uh, you're alone in a wilderness and you confront uh, a flying object in the sky which seems to trigger strange bursts of thought in yourself. This cannot be repeated and triggered on command. So only in the context of the psychedelic experience and the willed decision to act can you enter this arena of repeatedly uh, going to meet the experience of the other? And uh, it is a very, very bizarre enterprise. It is not that if we do it enough times, we will understand it or become comfortable with it because it is not in its nature to be understood and it is not in its nature to accommodate itself to us rather it's that we've discovered another dimension almost in the same way that uh, Europeans discovered another world only 500 years ago in 1992 we will celebrate the 500th anniversary of Columbus's discovery of America 
Now, notice that when Columbus set out from Spain, uh, uh, there was a large body of intelligent opinion which believed that he was sailing over the edge of the world, literally, that he was sailing out of mind. And instead, what, what lay at the end of that voyage was real estate, <laughs> immense amounts of real estate. And we have come to terms with that and, in fact, now inhabit what 500 years ago was not even on the maps. It was in the unconscious. Now it is the center of the global economy. In the same way that these European uh, navigators began to have this intimation that the world was a wraparound, that's what it means to say that the world is round. It means you can get back to where you started from by going away continuously. In the same way that the European navigators discovered that the world was a wraparound, I think we are on the brink of discovering that you can start in three-dimensional space and time, move off in a linguistic vehicle, and find your way back to the place you left from. This means that what we call three-dimensional space and what we call the imagination actually have a contiguous and continuous transformation from one into the other. And this is big news. This entirely goes against our Cartesian expectation that thoughts inside world outside, objects outside, perceptions inside. And this is actually nothing more, this inside-outside thing, than an artifact of European languages. And yet, we take it to be, uh, you know, how God made the world, basically, because we are so embedded in our language that we cannot... Literally, we cannot uh, cognize reality without it. We cannot cognize reality without our language. But then in the psychedelic state, somehow this happens. Somehow syntax is replaced by hypersyntax. Uh, linguistically moderated and modulated perception is replaced by perception in the raw not uh, coded and sculpted and sifted for culturally validated meaning, but rather just the full hit. Well, this is tremendously disorienting, but it's also tremendously liberating because that's the full deck. That's when you have full command of the options available within the matrix. If you play the cultural game, it's like playing only with clubs or something, or playing only with the red-marked cards. You have to play with a full deck, and that includes this pre-linguistic uh, surround in which we are embedded. Now, why is it so emotionally charged for us? In other words, why can the shamans go into this dimension uh, and heal? 
or, or divine, see into the future, or in a sense see into the past by discovering who stole whose cow or who's sleeping with who or all these things that shamans are concerned with. What is this uh, ground of being that we discover by uh, dissolving the cultural machinery of cognition? Well, I think what it is is simply uh, reality unpackaged for a historical epoch. In other words, uh, reality uncompromised um, by the need to be culturally efficacious and useful. And this is precisely what we need to throw light on our culture crisis because the models that we have used to sanction information that is culturally useful have given us information which is toxic. I mean, we have actually created a, a toxic relationship between ourselves and nature. We have pursued avenues of questioning the feedback from which have given us an overpopulated, polluted, ideology-obsessed, uh, uh, unresponsive planet that we're living in. We, as a culture must conventionalize and believe that today is whatever it is, November 5th or 6th, 1988. But some of us are living in the 21st century and some of us are living in the 18th century. And the goal, you know, is to try and move all this forward. This is why, it's funny, certain themes that have emerged in the Western mind uh, are in fact very psychedelic and one of them is uh, the notion of progressivism which is a pretty western idea and quite psychedelic it's the idea that things are getting better or that things can get better uh, most societies uh, look backward toward a paradigm of a past paradise and all effort is toward recovering this paradise we're the only people who have this faith in progress and uh, it's quite strong in us, so strong that we barely question it. I remember the first time I was in Karachi, Pakistan, I was being hauled around the city in a rickshaw drawn by a guy with bare feet. I mean, it was a human-powered machine. and. Uh, and he spoke English and we were scoring hash and this and that so we got to know each other and he said uh, in Pakistan we understand what is wrong with the world and I said so what's wrong with the world and he said progress <laughs> that's what it is we have to stop progress which for me was a, quite a, a revelatory idea this thing about time though is very interesting and operates on many different levels. Uh, ultimately, I think what the psychedelic experience may be is uh, a higher topological manifold of temporality. That the reason it is so puzzling and so familiar, so alien and so exalting, is that it is in fact mundane it is in fact just us but us 
sectioned through some higher spatial dimension. And if, for instance, you think about magic for a moment, uh, let's think about the, the major um, uh, identifiers of the magical act, such as uh, psychic surgery, where your hand is plunged through the wall of the body cavity of a human being and, and a tumorous organ is taken out and the, no wound is visible. A typical and form of folk magic much discussed. I'm sure you're all familiar with it. Or uh, the more typical, uh, or another form of magic, stage magic in this case, uh, a word is written on an envelope and then the envelope is locked in a box and the blindfolded magician is able to tell the audience what the word is in the envelope in the box. And these things are miraculous. We cannot conceive of how they could be done. Uh, but if you allow the possibility of a higher spatial dimension, then these things become trivial because uh, it means the body is open. There is a way to that that from the point of view of this higher spatial dimension, the inside and the outside of the body are on the same side. So no problem is posed by removing this organ. Likewise, from the point of view of a higher spatial dimension, the locked box is open on one end, the end that is intersecting that dimension. So the way you read the message is you just go over and look. It's completely trivial. Uh, a way to make this cogent for people who are now thoroughly confused is to recall Edwin Abbott's fantasy Flatland where he imagined a world of two dimensions where a house was what in our world is what's called a blueprint and that was all you needed was the blueprint and you could live in the blueprint because you walked in and once you had closed the door no one in Flatland could come through that blue line and get at you. But of course, to those of us in three dimensions, we just lean over and look at the blueprint and put your thumb in the inside of the Flatlander's living room. And from his point of view, from out of nowhere, an enormous thumb has magically appeared in his living room. Well, this shows how perfectly mundane situations on one level appear to be absolute violations of uh, natural law on another level. And this is happening very much in the psychedelic experience because the mind is the cutting edge of the evolving event system. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the idea of, of um, this race that we're in between apocalypse and some kind of transformational um, event, and how, from how the your experience uh, in altered states has has led you to believe or feel that there's some hope for changing that, and why? Well, I think it's clear that we're in a race between apocalypse and, and uh, breakthrough. And I suppose breakthrough is the dark horse. Everything seems to be set up to favor apocalypse. It has the inside track. 
except of course very few people would own up to saying that they personally want to die you know so why is it if none of us really want to die why is the uh, overwhelming global cultural image one of inevitable uh, catastrophe I'm very optimistic uh, I really think history was for a purpose I would not have not had it I think it was useful and that we must have learned something very important what we learned that was so important I'm not sure but probably when we need it we'll have it I mean maybe we need atomic weapons because a large object will be detected hurtling toward earth and if nature had not split off the monkeys a hundred thousand years ago and evolved intercontinental missile thermonuclear weapon delivery systems that we could use to destroy that asteroid then all life on earth would die so what appears to us madness our own dedication to the release of larger and larger amounts of, en of energy for no purpose other than to destroy ourselves is suddenly rescued from pathology and shown to be this tremendously foresightful thing and thank God we did this because otherwise we'd all be dead and everything else would be dead. I don't seriously uh, believe that. But I do think that we must have learned something very, very important. Perhaps cybernetics come in here. Perhaps uh, this exoskeleton of mnemonic um, material that allows us essentially to freeze and, uh, and uh, record our entire culture. Everything is going into the databanks. Uh, one way of thinking about what's going on is uh, compression of information and history represents a compression of information magnitudes more accelerated than the evolution of life and then 20th century history represents an even greater information compression information finally compressed to such a degree that it's like the singularity inside a black hole. You know, a black hole has at its center a place where the equations don't sum. In other words, where it doesn't make any sense. And the un only conclusion you can reach is that at that point of so-called infinite compression or singularity, another universe bursts into being somewhere else in a greater and vaster cosmology and then the energy equations balance well it's as though mind is undergoing this kind of gravitational collapse and information is being compressed to such a degree that eventually it will not all fit in the present and then the information begins to move off into the only dimensions available to it which are the past and the future exactly as if you fill a glass with more water than it can hold once it has more water in it than it can hold the water begins to flow down the sides and out into the larger domain and so I think that people who try to use history 
which is usually male egos and male-dominated institutions, are uh, actually tremendously frustrated. We don't see it that way because to us it looks like they win every battle because they win every election. But because they win every election, it is their job to manage the situation. It's a case of you want it, here it is. And they have not a clue as to how to manage it. So their thing is all about the headaches of ownership, while our political point of view is pretty much about the headaches of disenfranchisement. But uh, I think that there is some kind of event ahead of us in time, not far, on the order of 20 to 40 years, that is casting an enormous shadow back through the lower dimensional slice of being, which we call history, so that religions and mystical visions and the, and the visions of, uh, of uh, revolutionary leaders are um, a response to flickering intimations of this transcendental object that is pulling intelligence out of the organic matrix of life on this planet in a process that is occupying 50 to 100,000 years. It's extremely unusual what's happening. And a process that um, creates a series of self-transforming uh, bootstrap steps in a period of 100,000 years means it's a unique kind of phenomenon. There's never been anything like it on the planet. What it is leading toward is hard to say, but I know that uh, its values are the values of life, connectedness, primacy of experience, and caring. And it is using the historical process to wire us all together in some way. Uh, control me mechanisms are spreading through the society at an enormous rate. You know, it's interesting, one of the horror fantasies of the 1950s, which was when, you know, this conservative straight um, <clears throat> crew-cut point of view was really at its height, one of the fears of the future that people would just toss off offhandedly was... Uh, well, in the future, machines will take over and run everything. And this notion of uh, the control of the planet wrested from the sure hands of noble human beings and instead betrayed into the power of calculating automatons was a, a great science fiction theme of the 50s. But uh, it's interesting how impartial computers are. They are not ideologues. They are not, um, they're managers. And remember I said the struggle was between the shaman manager and the ideologue politician. And so I think the cybernetic matrix is a tremendous uh, tool for feminizing and radicalizing and psychedelicizing the social matrix. I see computers as entirely feminine. I mean, people 
have a reaction to this because they think that because men spend a lot of time around them and seem obsessed with them that somehow it isn't feminine but men have always been obsessed with the feminine I mean uh, I think it was it was D.H. Lawrence who said uh, what life is really about is uh, men keeping women from ever suspecting how truly obsessed we are by them <clears throat> so I, I think uh, you know that this this linking together feminizing cybernetic thing is part of the anticipation of this object at the end of time what seems to be happening is we're all flowing together I mean, we keep talking about unity uh, globalism completion well you better you know you're gonna get what you ordered and I think what it means is probably uh, the dear individual which don't be fooled is a uh, a soft uh, description of the male ego run rampant the democratic individual the citizen this notion is in fair peril to be replaced by uh, uh, the person which is a much more um, nubbly kind of concept the person is not an interchangeable part the citizen is the citizen is a model of society based on uh, the industrial revolution of the 19th, of the 18th century but the person is a harking back to a pre uh, print model and uh, this this is uh, being set loose it's what the hippies were essentially what they were trying to evoke was this do your own thing idea so but there's a paradox here the do your own thing idea is somehow leading to this vectoring toward a unified cultural state where everybody is involved in everybody else it's all right that it's paradoxical because there's no reason that it should be reasonable. Yeah. I if you could address the difference between the LSD experience and mushroom experience, if there is a difference, and also your feelings about marijuana as an altered state. Well, the LSD experience is, uh, to m I mean, I speak only from my own experience, of course, but to me it seemed more psychoanalytical than psychedelic more I mean I was in my early 20s when I encountered LSD maybe I had more stuff as they say to deal with but uh, it was not a reliable visionary drug for me it caused me to have funny ideas it seemed mostly to be a thought thing but not a visual thing and somehow in my education somewhere along the way I had picked up this bias in favor of the visual channel I wasn't satisfied with LSD I wanted those things that Havelock Ellis describes where he talks about you know jeweled ruins and phosphorescent maidens in diaphanous gowns howling demon songs beneath a violet moon and that was what I wanted and not funny ideas <laughs> and 
and uh, and what I found, and, and I worked pretty diligently at it with LSD, I found that my most satisfying LSD experiences were while smoking hash, and that then that really did do something interesting, sent it skittering off in these wonderful visionary directions. But... Uh, uh, these things do have characters, and this is something probably worth talking about in this group, that at low doses, everything seems like everything else. In other words, a little mescaline, a tiny amount of LSD, a little bit of MDMA, a tiny tad of psilocybin, all of these things simply register as wired, you know, arousal, eager to hear what's being said and follow the thread of the argument and just absolutely fascinated by what's going on no matter what's going on uh, but as you raise the dose they, they, the character of these things begins to appear and uh, for instance psilocybin is to my mind in many ways the most anomalous because number one this thing about how it speaks, it does speak, and none of the others do. I mean, the others you may occasionally, in years of fiddling, get a, a sentence or two, but the mushroom just is voluble. It just comes on and raves, you know, and sometimes you even, and people have said to me, it really does rave. I mean, it's not a calm, it's not a, it's not a go with the flow rap. It's a rap about planetary destiny and the next 10 million years and the last 10 million years. And, you know, the, it's this trumpet blast, Cecil B. DeMille, hyper, you know, real like that. Well, then something like ayahuasca, which is this thing these shamans use in the Amazon basin that's based on DMT and monoamine oxidase inhibitors, you take that and it's about the rivers and the jungle and these people and their humility and dignity and your humility and dignity and the earth and plants and life and water and sunlight and it's this totally earthbound terrestrial life affirming thing and it does not speak but it's an eye, and its language is visual, and it, after an ayahuasca trip, you just feel like your eyes are literally bulging out of your head. I mean, you've spent six hours looking, 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 just, you know, not really doing anything else but looking. Um, well, then, uh, something like detura, has this watery, magical, forgetful, kind of witchy, occult quality. It's, uh, you know, shadows, shadows, and, and a peculiar quality of erosion of your own attention, so that, you know, who, no matter who you are, you find yourself wandering through empty colonnades and uh, in under a sky pregnant with the possibility of rain. I mean, it's this strange, decuric esque kind of landscape. Uh, 
DMT has another quality. It seems to convey you into just a, a, a world of utter outrage where all linguistic sensory and analytical machinery is just uh, brought to a screeching halt. So it's, int it, you know, it's important to learn what you like and to learn what you can uh, put up with. Someone at a recent weekend who, who takes mushrooms quite religiously and quite regularly and I said, you know, does it ever get easier? And he said, no, it, it never gets easier. Each time what I pray as I go into it is, please let me be able to stand a little bit more. Because, you know, finally you just, it is the real mystery. So the only way your relationship to it can end is by you averting your gaze because no human being can gaze into it endlessly because it is, um, you know, it, it is uh, what it says it is. It is uh, the other. I was groping for the Hebrew but not finding it. Yes, yeah. just want to follow up on that question a little bit. Uh, Stan Groff describes LSD as a non-specific amplifier, and by that he means it amplifies what's already existing in the psyche. And he uses this metaphor that LSD serves as a kind of telescope or microscope, in that it does not itself produce the experience, but rather it enables you to have an experience that's already there in potentia, latent in your psyche. And I just wonder if you could comment on that, since you just now described the various psychoactives as having a character. So in his framework, would you disagree with it, or would you say that the, the various telescopes are tinted with a certain lens, or, or how would you sort of reconcile? Well, um, at the beginning of your question, you characterized LSD. Uh, it's that it, um, it is a nonspecific amplifier, but of the contents of the personal unconscious and the sensorium. Uh, what people notice about LSD is either what's right or wrong with themselves or how freaky the world is. You know, uh, a bug, a drop of water, it can be anything. But you discover the strangest things on LSD and they're real things. I mean, relationships of reflections and windows. And, I mean, it basically seems to be a tremendous amplifier of attention and analysis of the input of attention when directed into the outer world. And when directed into the inner world, uh, it's an analytical tool for looking at past history of the, of the individual, which is what I call the personal unconscious. The thing that always puzzled me about enthusiasts of LSD uh, was that they claimed that beyond this lie what they called the white light, which they put great store by and made all kinds of Buddhist associations to it. I don't know if I've ever had the white light experience. As I go deeper into strong psychedelics, what happens is multiplicity proliferates. There is not a simplifying. There is a further 
and further and further complexifying. And uh, I was talking to someone at Ojai Foundation about this, and they said, but surely beyond all this, there is some kind of simplification and unity. And I said, well, that I wasn't sure, that maybe it's just, you know, an infinite sansaric ocean in all directions, in all dimensions forever. Uh, Ketamine comes closer to providing a no-observer, nothing-observed kind of state, but you can't do much with that. You can have it, but I, and it, it, there is, of course, with the dropping of all boundaries, a feeling of release. But uh, what I'm interested in are uh, bringing back artifacts to share with the tribe. And I've accepted that they will come in the form of either things that can be painted or things that can be said. And... Uh, and since I'm better at the saying than the painting, I work like that. Uh, Stan is a good friend of mine. We've talked about this over the years. Um, I just don't, I just can't confirm his maps of the psyche. I don't see those states occurring along a continuum the way that he says they do. I think it's much more chaotic and that if, if his categories work to facilitate psychotherapy, then that's good because that's what he's interested in. In other words, I see his, his maps as very, very provisional and useless and useful for navigating, but I doubt that when we get the final maps, if we ever do, that they will bear terrifically much resemblance to that. And I think he would agree with that. I mean, we, we're not uh, at loggerheads about this. Anybody who works with psychedelics, their ultimate position is that, hell, they don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, why don't we go to lunch and uh, we will reassemble at 2 o'clock. If you're new to the neighborhood, uh, Hate Street is two blocks down Ashbury, and there's a, a plethora of restaurants to choose from down there. Okay, I think uh, I think we're all here. Or people are pulling together. So we'll talk for an hour or so, and then we'll break. And then we'll go to four. Well, this afternoon I thought uh, we would uh, do some operational homework and academic referencing. One of the most important things about uh, all of this that we've been discussing is to get the information straight, to be as well-informed as possible. I mean, it's as important to be well-informed in this area, if you're going to do it, as it is to be well-informed about procedures in skin diving and that sort of thing, uh, if you're going to do that. Okay, well, what I thought I'd do at the beginning of this afternoon today apropos of this idea that people should inform themselves uh, about what's going on because 
Though you can't find out everything, you can find out a lot more than most people know. And it's amazing to me the number of people who would pay a couple of hundred bucks to come to a weekend with a person like myself to learn about psychedelics when a couple of hundred books would get you quite far uh, in a bookstore and, uh, uh, you know, the public library is a marvelous resource for this stuff. So I hauled some titles off my own bookshelf and I'll go through them. This is by no means all. I just simply chose books that I thought were either important to the field or I felt would be fairly easy for someone to obtain if they wanted to look into these matters. Uh, this one, some of you may know, this is probably the easiest to obtain and the most compendious. It's Plants of the Gods by Richard Evans Schultes, who is Professor Emeritus of Botany at Harvard. And uh, this is basically the distillation of his life's work. It's filled with pictures. It has all kinds of uh, uh, information arranged in this kind of table form where you can look up a plant, get a notion of what it looks like, what family it belongs to, what its chemical constituents are, and so forth. And it has a very good bibliography and a chemical appendix. So this is a round and highly recommended. If you want to go slightly deeper than that book goes, this is the academic version of the same book. This is the botany and chemistry of hallucinogens. This is the Bible of this field because it lists uh, well, virtually the state of the art circa 1980 and a compendious bibliography and uh, hmm, unopened mail. <laughs> and uh, this book, though, is that this is a, an expensive academic press, but highly recommended. If you had to have just one book on hallucinogens, this would probably be the one to go for. It's also by Richard Evans Schultes and Albert Hoffman, who some of you may know as the discoverer of LSD and the man who first characterized and synthesized psilocybin. Um, from a slightly more countercultural point of view, the revised edition of the Psychedelics Encyclopedia by uh, Peter Stafford, who some of you may know. And again, this is an effort to be compendious. No one of these books should be taken as gospel. I mean, you want to get it from several different sources before you conclude any given fact is true. But this book is published by Tarcher in L.A., I think this is a fairly easily obtained book. Is that the newest? I just talked to him at the Transpersonal Conference and he said he's coming out with the revised edition. That'll be, yeah, this, this is the second edition and he's going to do a third edition. Yeah. And he's uh, very good about keeping up on the, on the literature and, uh, 
and following it through. This is an interesting book. Peter Stafford. Then, um, for those of you who are more inclined to uh, pharmacology and neurophysiology and that sort of thing, this is a fairly hard book to obtain, but in a way it's never been surpassed. This book is called The Hallucinogens by Hoffer and Osmond. And uh, this, it, there was never a revised edition after 1965. Uh, discusses a lot about LSD and psychotherapy and also has all kinds of strange information that was never again mentioned in the literature, that was just sort of dropped out. So you can read here about, for instance, the hallucinogen uh, dimethyl sulfoxide, where you drink eight fluid ounces a day for five successive days, and then uh, the onset of hallucinations begin that are supposedly quite spectacular. It's just that the notion of drinking eight fluid ounces of this bizarre chemical compound uh, is not too uh, too appetizing. Nida, I doubt it. I think you probably have to have a scientific book searcher hunt this one down for you. Hoffer and Osmond, the hallucinogens. And then for sort of the state of the art uh, in a simple one between, you know, in one book is Solomon H. Snyder's book, Drugs and the Brain. And it doesn't simply address hallucinogens. It talks about uh, uh, all kinds of drugs, but explains the mechanism of drug activity, uh, the notion of uh, the lock and key activity of the drug molecule to the synaptic cleft, and it gives you a, a short basic course in uh, neurology. And Saul Snyder is one of the giants of psychopharmacology, Nobel Prize winner, so forth and so on. So Drugs in the Brain by Solomon Snyder. Uh, let's see here. Here's another book somewhat on the line of Snyder's book. This is one of the most recent books written on hallucinogens. It's by, uh, the editor is Barry Jacobs. Hallucinogens, Neurochemical, Behavioral, and Clinical Perspectives. And as my brother said, all of the uninteresting perspectives <laughs> are covered here very thoroughly and in detail. And what these books are good for, uh, besides whatever they say, is that they contain excellent bibliographies. So uh, tracing a particular problem, uh, you go to these books and then they direct you to the journal articles that give you what you want to know. Most of the literature of psychopharmacology is in journals, which you will never as a layman encounter unless you go to medical libraries and uh, attempt to see these things, uh, things like Loidia and, uh, oh, I don't know, Acta Neurologica and all of this, the Journal of uh, Psychopharmacology and this sort of thing. But uh, 
you can be directed to the, uh, I mean, some of these journals cost as much as $200 $300 a year to subscribe to. So if you don't want to do that, the bibliography directs you to the articles you need and you just go to the uh, med library and Xerox them out. It's edited by Barry Jacobs. I'm trying to do this in some kind of reasonable order. Let's see. Uh, well, then this sort of bridges the gap between pharmacology, sociology, and anthropology. This is uh, Brian Dutoy, I guess, D-U space T-O-I-T, Drugs. Brian Dutrois, Drugs, Rituals, and Altered States of Consciousness. And uh, some of the altered states of consciousness, hmm. <laughs> Let me see if I can make a quick identification here. I think this is actually Banisteriopsis rusbiana, which is a rare uh, admixture plant, contains DMT, but has the lanceolate leaf end that distinguishes it from Banisteriopsis copy. Hmm. Probably could do 10 years for the book. The publisher on this one is a weird one. It's uh, B-A-L-K-E-M-A, Balkema of Rotterdam. So it's a Dutch publisher. The author's name is uh, Dutois, D-U-T-O-I-T. Yeah, this is a this is a good one. And uh, so then, sort of moving out of the realm of uh, pharmacology and psychology, and into the specifically anthropological stuff. Uh, this is a, a one that a number of various contributors. Alternate states of consciousness, multiple perspectives on the study of consciousness, edited by Norman Zinberg of Harvard. And this deals not only with shamanic drug usage, but uh, heroin, the heroin subculture, and a number of different things. Urban drug cultures are discussed as well, mostly a sociological perspective here. Zinberg. And then uh, moving into the more specifically anthropological stuff, uh, in what order? Let's see. Well, here's my favorite one. Before he got into drumming, uh, Michael Harner edited this book, Hallucinogens and Shamanism, Oxford University Press, available in print, in paper. And a number of writers contributed to this. There are about three articles on ayahuasca that you just will not find anywhere else. Four articles. Uh, articles on peyote. A wonderful article by Henry Munn called The Mushrooms of Language. Just a classic article on mushrooms. So uh, this I highly recommend. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. 
And I'll add a second to that recommendation. Of course, uh, that Michael Harner book is the only one of those that he mentioned that I actually own. <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, it really is a great book. And I just uh, checked and found that there are still a few copies available at an affordable price uh, through Amazon and other places like that. Now, there is just one thing I would like to add about what Terrence was saying about ayahuasca being such a visual experience. Well, I don't think that's the case for everyone. While uh, I have on occasion had some spectacular visions, they didn't even begin to happen for me until I had been working with that substance for quite a few years. Unlike MDMA, there is a steep learning curve in learning how to work with the vine. And the other thing is that my most profound experiences on ayahuasca didn't even involve visions at all, but were things I was uh, able to access deep within the recesses of my mind and then bring them into the light of my everyday life. So if you've had a few experiences with ayahuasca and they didn't meet with your expectations after listening to Terrence, well, don't despair. (laughs) In fact, uh, I've never been able to reproduce what I thought he was uh, saying about any of the substances he talks about. Which causes me to recall that, first and foremost, uh, at least in my opinion, Terence was a poet. And so I don't get discouraged when the self-transforming machine elves never show up to play jeweled basketball with me in some jewel-encrusted palace. But even without all of those fireworks, uh, I still come back for more, so go figure. And were you thinking what I was thinking about 30 minutes or so into this talk when... He was uh, talking about our unthinking faith and progress, that we were always moving onward and upward. With all that has been taking place in the past 10 years since Terrence died, and all that is happening right now, it still doesn't seem to me that my concept of progress will be halted. However, my concept of it has changed quite a bit over the past 50 years. Now I see progress as getting off the grid and growing some of my own food. But I'm definitely not wanting to go back to any so-called good old days because I don't think that any age before now was all that much better. No, what I'm working toward is a more simple life, one that doesn't include commuting to a job that I don't enjoy and where I don't consume as much stuff. But I still want a high-speed connection to the net and all that brings with it in the way of connecting with you and my other friends. And I certainly expect a lot of progress in this area to where before long we can all be meeting in some kind of a holodeck version of the salon. Now that's the kind of progress I can get behind. And speaking of progress, right now uh, the only progress I've been making in building an interactive website to support my new book has uh, mainly been done in my head. But a recent email I received has reminded me that I should probably pass along some of the ideas that I'm working on. This came to me through Facebook the other day, uh, just before I somehow got cut off from access to my account. Uh, Hopefully that will magically clear up soon, but if you don't hear back from me on Facebook, it's because I now seem to be locked out. (laughs) Anyway, here is uh, part of the message that I received from JC. I am so glad to finally be able to say hello to you. Podcasts are not two-way, as you know. And that's the first thing that I'd like to address, which uh, are my plans for making these podcasts a little more interactive. Before this year ends, I hope to have a Skype record account set up where our fellow saloners who want to can add their voices to the discussion. I still have a lot of work to do on this, but I do want you to know that over time I hope to evolve these programs into a much more interactive format. 
Now, getting back to JC's email, I am looking to become more involved in the psychedelic community in a broad sense. Are there any conferences, mind states, or any other gatherings still being held these days? I am looking to connect with the tribe in a time space and not just through cyberspace, I guess. I am also looking to learn a lot and use my academics to dip my foot deeper into the realm of our subculture. I have just finished my first year of college but have stalled in order to gather the right energy. Well, JC, one thing that uh, I can pass along is the fact that you certainly aren't alone. A lot of people are asking the same kinds of questions these days, and if I were you, the first place I would go is over to the forums at thegrowreport.com. And not just the Psychedelic Salons Forum, but spend a little time lurking through all of the other ones as well. And in time, I think you'll begin to feel a part of a community as you get to know the frequent posters. And on those forums, you will also find postings about various festivals and other events where maybe you can find some of the others. The one event this summer that I am most familiar with, of course, is the Oracle Gathering, which is being held from July 31st through August 2nd. And I'll be one of the speakers there, but there'll be a whole lot more going on. And if you're near the Seattle to Portland area, this may be something to look into. So just go to Oracle Gatherings, O-R-A-C-L-E, G-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-G-S, oraclegatherings.com, for the details. And besides myself and, oh, a hundred or so artists and musicians who will also be there, you will be able to find Andre and Missy Nobles, who I think you can also find on Facebook, by the way. Another suggestion is the Science and Duality Conference that will be held from October 21st through the 25th of this year which is uh, 2009 for those who will be joining us a little later in these podcasts. And uh, one of the presenters at that conference is someone you may want to meet because he has uh, combined academics with an interest in the psychedelic community and who may be able to give you some more guidance on this topic. I'm speaking here of uh, Dr. Thomas Ray, who is a professor at the University of Oklahoma, and I'll put a link to his presentation topic along with the program notes for this program. And, by the way, two of the other speakers at that conference are people that you've heard from here in the salon on a couple of different occasions, and they are Daniel Pinchbeck and Alex Gray. So my guess is that that conference should be an excellent place to find a few of the others. And uh, I guess I should mention that it's going to be held in San Rafael, California. Now, while I had planned on announcing my shiny new interactive website today to support my new novel... Well, it looks like that's going to take a little longer to build than I first thought. Mainly because I'm not pushing myself very hard. Hey, it's summertime, remember? And besides that, I'm supposed to be retired. Anyway, I want to uh, thank those of you who forged ahead and downloaded a copy of The Genesis Generation. And as you have already discovered, it is actually more of a how-to manual embedded in a long lecture that is wrapped in a story to help pull you through. And in the weeks ahead, I'll have more to say about the response to the book and how you can become involved in shaping what goes into the next volume in this series. Oh, and in case you uh, haven't yet been to my genesisgeneration.us temporary website, you probably don't even know what it's all about, even if you did listen to the first chapter in last week's podcast. But basically, it's the story of a group of young friends who are struggling to make the transition from cubicle-working consumers into beings who are truly human. As one character says, 
People living a thousand years from now will remember you, not by name, but as having been a part of a new generation of humans. They will remember you as one of the people who helped to build a civilization that should last for yet another thousand years. And let me just say one last thing here, and that has to do with the fact that I know how strapped for cash a lot of our fellow saloners are right now. And if it wasn't my only source of income outside of my social security check, I'd be happy giving my book away. But the truth is, I'm in the same cash-poor boat myself, so here's an idea that might be a good compromise. Now, I'm assuming that everyone who downloads a copy is already impeccable, and so I'm not at all concerned that anyone would make copies and give them away. But the thing that bothers me is that if you bought a paperback book, you could loan it to a friend after you'd read it. So how about this? If you are testing the waters in your search to find the others, why don't you loan them your MP3 player overnight and let them listen to my book? I think that our fellow saloners who have already heard it will agree that anyone who listens to 11 hours of me going on about the wonder, the glory, and the importance of our sacred medicines and still isn't interested is probably not one of the others. But the idea is that if you just copy the files, they may never get around to listening to them. But if you loan them your own player overnight, it should get the ball rolling much sooner. Anyway, if you're sharing a copy with a friend without actually making another copy of it, well, I think that's great. Well, that's it for today. And so I'll again close by reminding you that this and almost all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 License. And if you have any questions about that, just uh, click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of our psychedelicsalon.org webpage. And uh, that's also where you'll find the program notes for these podcasts. And, of course, if you'd like to download a copy of my new book, just go to genesisgeneration.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. 